Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. Brent Hutchison is the executive director of the Heinemann Settlement School, which is all-encompassing with a number of uh, things that you do here, but uh, this week, the Appalachian Writers uh, Conference uh, that's been going on for a number of years. So, Brent, just tell us about uh, the Settlement School, first of all, and then we'll talk about the Writers Conference. Sure. Uh, the Hyman Settlement School was founded by two Kentucky women uh, back in 1902, and they were very much a part of the progressivism movement at the time uh, that was sweeping really the nation. Uh, Hyman was the first rural settlement school in the United States, and so they were very much contemporaries with um, schools that were taking place in Louisville, but also Chicago and New York City and London, and uh, wanted to make a difference in this part of the country. They, um, like I mentioned, they both had historic Kentucky families. Um, but they wanted to serve people in the mountains, and so they came here to do that. And over the years, Hyman has transitioned um, largely because of their vision, which was to meet the changing needs of our community. And so as education became uh, more strongly held in the community with the public school system, we transitioned to support students to, get to finish high school, uh, which was not really possible for many of them. They had to go somewhere and live, so they lived on our campus. We were known as the best school in the mountains for many years, um, 700 kids on the waiting list in 1915. So the settlement movement here was really strong very quickly. Um, and we've supported arts education and arts and humanities work in the local community really from the beginning too, largely because of a writing heritage that's taken place here at the settlement school. Uh, but we transitioned in, in around 1980 uh, to serving students with dyslexia. And that's been a huge part of our mission now for about 40 years. Um, we are the only nonprofit in central Appalachia that serves students with uh, dyslexia needs, regardless of their ability to pay. And so we have uh, programs that reach throughout the region. We have a summer residential program. We have an in-school program here in Knott County. Uh, we also do arts education in the local schools. We provide that in our elementary and middle schools here in Knott County, and we're the sole provider of that. The schools don't support our teachers here financially, so we do that, and really have done that since the, the late 1960s. That's a big part of it. Um, four years ago, the settlement school has really always been involved in community service work, but adopted this um, reemergence of foodways work and food justice work, where there's we believe there's no reason that people here should be hungry and have to settle for food that's not good for their families. And so we're doing our very best to make a difference there. We've got lots of programs that have surrounded that, and that program has honestly just expanded very quickly over the last four years. The difficulty with uh, the learning disability uh, problem that you uh, spelled out, uh, of course, you've been here now six years. Mm -hmm. um, do you see it uh, on the same number uh, that uh, your predecessors uh, have dealt with over the last uh, 20 or plus years uh, or, or is that improving what why why such an influx of, of learning disability in in the mountains a lot of that is because dyslexia in particular it has a genetic component and so we have this being passed down through family lines over the course of generations you know, a place like Knott County would have hundreds of family lines where a place like Lexington might have thousands. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a little more concentrated here as a result of that. 
Um, and honestly, you know, it's not really a problem that gets better. It's a problem that we want to make sure is treated better within our schools. We want to equip our teachers better to work with students who are in their regular classrooms. We want to make sure that dyslexic students have opportunities that they don't miss because they have a learning challenge like dyslexia. So um, what we are actually seeing are, are more kids, but the reason we're doing that is because we're expanding our programs and growing them. And so we're able to treat more people, which is really, um, um, I, th I think, a good thing. Uh, otherwise, they probably would not have services. And so for us, we know this is something we'll always be doing. Uh, the method might change, but you know we're committed to being able to do that for a long time because people here and people really everywhere need to have people who are standing up for them and saying that dyslexic can learn, their intelligence is above average. We need to be giving them opportunities where they don't feel behind. They don't need to go into third and fourth grade failing to read. You know, we know that they can learn how to read, and that makes a huge difference with the rest of their lives. And so we're doing the very best we can to make sure that by the time they hit fourth grade, they're on reading level. This is the 41st year for the Appalachian Writers Conference. Mm -hmm. uh, talk a little bit about uh, its roots and uh, uh, what you've learned about how it's grown and, and uh, what's happened uh, in the last few years and where you'd like to see it go. Sure. The Appalachian Writers Workshop really has been around since the 1950s, and it was started by a man named Albert Stewart, who's a Knott County native, actually grew up here at the settlement school. He was um, one of Miss Lucy Furman's boys, that's what she called him, and she helped raise him, and she was the first novelist to actually be on staff here at the settlement school back in the teens and 20s. Um, but Mr. Stewart started that work at Moorhead State University, and Heinemann really adopted it in the late 1970s. So it's been here now 41 years, and we really believe this is the premier writer's workshop in Kentucky, if not the South. And we're very, very proud of it. You know, the Appalachian voice is a distinctive voice, and we do a lot to um, protect it, to expand it, to promote it. Um, but people of all stripes are welcome here. It's just the place that specifically serves that voice, whether through the faculty who come and work on our staffs each summer or for the participants who come and are figuring out their own writing voice. We want to just make sure that that is a voice that's lifted up and that that's celebrated, honestly. Um, it's, it's a unique distinctive of American culture that we believe is so important. And so we're continuing to uh, advance that as best we can. And the workshop itself is sort of a fixed thing. It's been here 41 years. We only have so many beds on campus. And so we're at capacity every year. Uh, we turn people away every year who would like to be here. And uh, we're just thrilled to be able to have that sort of interest in what we do. And we're continuing to engage new writers and people who return here year after year. Roughly our audience is about half and half every year. Um, last summer we had an incredible opportunity to bring Wendell Berry in to help celebrate our 40th and Wendell has such an incredible voice for um, this agrarian lifestyle and he, he's been a part of Heinemann's work in the past and so to bring him here was great. Last year Weta Michael, our wonderful chef friend from Lexington, Weta serves on our board of directors as well, came to celebrate Wendell's work and also the 40th anniversary. And that sparked a new idea um, that we would have a chef in residence here too and as we celebrate that keynote speaker, let's let's bring in a chef who celebrates their work through food, which goes hand in hand with our food waste work. And so that's been a new innovation that we're doing and that we love. And um, yeah, so this year we have uh, Nikki Giovanni coming to be our keynote speaker, who's an incredible black poet um, from Tennessee, lives now in Virginia. And Lawrence Weeks is a chef out of Louisville who's coming to uh, celebrate her work through a meal on Friday night. And you're uh, James Still, um, a residence a writer, uh, first time ever. Uh, you have inaugurated that right. uh, in your administration. Uh, tell us about what you hope Rebecca ba uh, Rebecca Gale Howe uh, will will do for 
for Heinemann and, and do for the uh, writer's workshop. Rebecca brings um, an incredible, unique voice. There's nobody like her. There's nobody who writes poetry the way she does. There's nobody that tells the story she's telling. And her roots go back here in eastern Kentucky as far back as you know she knows within her family. Even We're a tenant, a tenant farming family really from Buckhorn, the next county. And so that's her family story too. So she understands the mountains and mountain people and she understands our history. And she calls out the beautiful parts of where we live and she calls out the things that are tough about our history and about our present. Um, so that's always important to a writer to have the freedom to do that. So we want Rebecca to have that freedom. Um, but Rebecca has quickly been able to identify through her research and work and something that we've always known that Hyman Settlement School is really the seedbed of the Appalachian literary tradition. She says that. Um, she probably has shared that with you. And as such, we have a responsibility uh, to continue to grow the literary voice that comes from Heinemann. And so in her tenure already, we've started an online writing program called The Makery, which expands this work outside of this one week a year so that people can be a part of it all year in an affordable way. Maybe they can't get away for an MFA graduate education, but they can go through The Makery and have graduate level training with a certificate that comes at the end of that. Um, we have a reading room dedicated to Appalachian literature and writers that I think is unparalleled and will continue to be so as it grows. And that's an important new feature of some campus construction we've been undergoing. We are launching um, the University Press of Kentucky's very first imprint. And they've never done that before in their 75-year history. The Hyman Settlement School will now have an imprint with them called Fireside Industries. And we'll announce that later this week. And we're very excited about that partnership. And on and on, you know, what Rebecca's done here um, has really been able to, to point to all those places that we've been needing to do work for a long time. We now have the capacity to be able to support her and to support this work. And so it expands our literary, um, our heritage and our future in ways that I didn't imagine three years ago. I'm very, very proud of her. For a first-time participant at the uh, Appalachian Writers uh, Workshop or for someone who's been coming for years, what do you want them to leave Heinemann with? I think when you go to a workshop that feels in some way like a professional development workshop or a creative training sort of workshop, you want to walk away knowing that your skills have been honed, that you figured out some things about yourself that maybe you didn't know before, um, that you've advanced yourself. And so that comes with that territory. But for me, I, th I think it's I think the most important thing that I hear people talk about and that I think is true about coming to Hyman in general, not just for the writer's workshop, but in general, is that you walk away with a family, that this place feels like home to you. And so the people who come here as part of our writer's workshop leave, I think, many times with a writing family, a writing community that doesn't just end on the Saturday afternoon that the workshop ends. It extends throughout the next year until the next workshop. And I think for many people grows to be a very important part of their lives. And that was one of the first things I learned when I came to Hyman six years ago was that that was happening. Um, we have done our, our best to continue to promote that and to make this a place where everybody's welcome. But at the same time, uh, you, are, you are in it very seriously. Um, you know, we have, we have writers from all different backgrounds and all different skill levels, but they all sit at the same table. And they all sit at the same table with the people here who are teaching them. And so it has an egalitarian feel, but at the same time, it's a very um, fraternal sort of thing. And I think that's one of the most beautiful pieces of the workshop. Silas House, uh, thank you for talking with us. What does the Appalachian Writers Conference mean to you? Well, I don't think I would have been a writer if it hadn't been for the Appalachian Writers Workshop. Um, I first came here when I was about 24 or 25, I think. 
and I was really, really getting serious about my riding. Yeah, I have been riding ever since I was in elementary school, but I, through college I became more serious about creative riding and was working on a novel. So when I first came here, I had the first draft of Clay's Quilt, and I worked with um, Sharon McCrum and Robert Morgan, who two of the biggest names in Appalachian literature. And just to, I don't know, be in the same room with them was thrilling, but to get to sit down and for them to have read a piece of my work and then critique it, give me feedback, it just, it was life-changing. And not only the published writers I work with, but equally, if not more important, were, was the community that I formed here. The other emerging writers, struggling writers who, you know, were trying to become published to have each other to encourage and to um, to celebrate each other's successes and all that, you know, I think it, the writing is such a thing of solitude that you really need that community and that, and I got it here at Heinemann. You came here before you went to Spalding. Yeah, about... Um, eight or nine years before I got my MFA, yeah. So uh, how have you seen it change? Well, I think it's a lot more diverse now. It's <laughs> in, mainly in age, because when I first came, it, was, it skewed very, very um, much older. It tended to be only retired people for the most part, and a lot of teachers who were off in the summer. And now I feel like it's a bigger mix of different kinds of people, and people are coming. Also, I think that it, people come from all over now in a way that used to. They, they came more from just Kentucky. But the people who come from all over are all mostly products of the, the diaspora. <laughs> They're all mm -hmm. uh, either people who left Appalachia because of the economy or the children of those people who are coming back to, you know, reclaim their identities. Um, and I think that's something that everybody at Hammond's worked hard to make it uh, be more diverse in every way it can be. Um, and, and we welcome, I think, you know, it's, it's the most inclusive place I can think of. So I hope people will know that. I think sometimes people don't know that and they hesitate maybe to come because because they don't know that, but everybody's welcome, everybody's encouraged to come, and we want it to be as diverse as possible. And I think sometimes people are intimidated mm -hmm. in thinking that their work is not uh, uh, to a level or to, to the quality as some of the other participants, uh, but I, I've never found that to be true. And I think what's so impressive is the way uh, the instructors, the teachers, uh, the, the faculty really go out of their way uh, to treat uh, everyone fairly and equally and mm -hmm. to spend as much time with the uh, the first draft writer as someone who's polishing up a novel oh, and, yeah. and that you you know the encouragement that that gives a uh, any writer young or old it's definitely the most egalitarian place uh, writers conference that I know of I mean I don't think there's another writing workshop of any kind in the country where you're going to be washing dishes, you know, students and faculty wash dishes together. 
to me that's one of the great things about Hyman is that um, you you do everything you're not separated you know you're living together you're eating together you're you're even washing those dishes together um, and as Hyman has you know Hyman has changed a lot and become very, uh, a lot more modernized and um, and it's it's mission evolves and all that but that egalitarian spirit never changes and to me that's the the bedrock of it. How would you like to see it uh, grow uh, in the future? Uh, this is the 41st year uh, in the uh, the 50th year, the 60th year. Mm-hmm. Will the the core of mentoring and supporting and treating everyone equally, uh, encouraging, uh, will it be the same or would you like to see that molded in, in, in a different way? I wouldn't want to see the the essential thing changed at all. You know, the things that have changed that have been um, the really good kind of change are you know, um, just some uh, the the way classes have changed and evolved uh, to meet the times, or you know the way the buildings have changed, or the food, things like that, but. Uh, those essential things have remained the same from the beginning. That uh, the way that everybody's treated as equals, this down home spirit. Everybody that comes here for the first time talks about home, you know, and um, it's a constant refrain of feeling like they're at home. When I first came here, I'd hardly been anywhere, but now I've been all over the world as a writer, and the thing that always moves me when I come here is I always feel like it's the place that I fit in more than anywhere else mm-hmm. because it's like people are talking in my language um, and the things that are, we, we all hold really common things to be important. Um, when I go to some literary conferences, for instance, people don't have conversations about cornbread, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And, and then when, you know, but, but also we have really intense conversations about literature. Mm-hmm. So it's like the perfect combinations of being down home and being really serious and taking the literature very seriously, but also uh, celebrating our identities as rural people or the products of rural families, you know, um, being aware of a real heritage and uh, there's nothing that builds a community bigger than that shared heritage. The southernmost uh, has uh, been out now for uh, a few months, and you're traveling. Uh, how do you like the book tour? Tell me about how it's been received. Well, I'm in my. I just did my 18th stop on a 20 city book tour, so. Um, it's been a lot of fun. You know, I love uh, going and talking to people about the book and. Um, it's um, the best part to me about writing is the act of writing. I'm not somebody that is doing it to be out in the public eye. However, after I dread it and all that, once I get out there, I love it. I love. Uh, it feels like that you are uh, your characters have sort of been taped up in a box, and suddenly you're getting to let them loose and mm-hmm. free out into the world. So I love that aspect of it, of getting to see those characters take on life 
of their own in the minds of other people. Um, and, you know, so I just uh, drink a lot of water and uh, <laughs> read a lot while I'm on book tour. Um, this is um, a pretty extensive uh, city tour. I, I don't know. I haven't checked your other uh, tours, but, I mean, this is taking you because the book's part of it is set in Key West and, mm-hmm. and, and you're doing some some other southern stops and, and, and you're going to be in Florida, where I have been in Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so... In in different parts of the country, uh, do do are people reading the book like you like you want them to, or giving you the kind of feedback that you would expect, or do you find a, a difference in the way that that people interpret what you've tried hmm. to say? For the most part, I think you know the people who have talked to me seem to be getting it, and. Um, you know, every once in a while, there's some kind of cultural thing that people will ask me about that they they don't get, or you know, some colloquial thing. But for the most part, you know, I think that it being my sixth novel, um, I I have learned how to. One thing I really want to do in my novels is celebrate this really specific world, but put it in the context where just about anybody can understand it in that way to reach, you know, people in that way. But, um, yeah, for the most part, it's, um, it's always, it's always good to talk to people about the book and about, but of course, you know, the thing about when you're a Kentucky writer or a Southern writer, an Appalachian writer, it's somewhat different when you're out in the world than when you're a writer from anywhere else, because people not only want you to talk about the book, but they also want you, they want you to answer questions about the South about Kentucky because there's so much misunderstanding about us and so much curiosity most of it with really good intention every once in a while sort of with a tinge of meanness you know or I guess disdain would be the better word so often as a rider out on the road I, I feel like I, I tell people all the time that I love where I'm from more when I have to defend it and I, I have to defend it a lot out on the road. That was mentioned last night in one of the readings um, at the Appalachian Writers uh, Workshop, when one of the uh, uh, when the poet, I believe, uh, was it Nicole Brown, uh, who mentioned that that she's faced with some of that. That uh, she had moved from Kentucky to Florida, and now she's in Asheville, and. Why do you think it is after so long that we native Kentuckians feel like people don't understand us? Or, I mean, I can understand that that occurred mm-hmm. 20 years ago, mm-hmm. 30 years ago. Uh, but today, it, there seems to still be that stereotype that people, oh, yeah. when you walk in the room, they, there's a question on, on their right. face. Well, I think it's... Uh... I, in fact, I think it's gotten worse in the last 20 or 30 years. And I think in an increasingly um, sensitive world where people are more aware, thankfully, of their own racism and homophobia and misogyny and all that, where they've learned you know, that, that some things are no longer acceptable in public conversation, but that's the last holdout. It's okay to make fun of the, you know, 
of people from the South or Kentucky, and I think it's because people always attach us to poverty. And so, you know, it's always okay to negate a poor person for, for a lot of people, whether they realize it or not, that's where it comes from. I mean, when people make fun of my accent, it's because they're attaching my accent to poverty. They, they hear poverty in it. You know, some people hear a rhythm or a cadence or whatever in it, but a lot of people just hear poverty. Um, and so I think that it, even subconsciously sometimes people think it's okay to make fun of poor people. Poor people don't have power, so it's okay to make fun of them. I remember hearing you tell the story, and I know you've told it many times, uh, when you told me that uh, you tried very hard for a long time to to lose your Appalachian uh, accent. And somebody gave you some advice, I believe, one time. Uh, what you finally figured out is that that to embrace it, uh, to uh, that that's who you are, and that's who we all are, just to, to talk like we... Uh, we're from we're, mm. we're from Kentucky. It doesn't have anything to do with your education right. level. Was there one person who, who, mm. who yeah? Who, who, well, I, n- I never tried to lose my accent, but when I went on my first book tour, I became really, I, I was just uh, really paranoid that I would go into a bookstore and I would open my mouth and everybody would get up and leave, you know, because I had had so many people, uh, especially in college, make fun of the way I talked, especially professors who weren't from the region. Um, and so I revealed that to Lee Smith, who's been my literary men- biggest literary mentor. And we were here at the Appalachian Writers Workshop, and I was going on a book tour fairly soon, and I was telling her about my fears of that. And she said, you know, well, just be yourself, and if people don't like it, too bad. You know, you're never going to please everybody, and you'll much better please everybody by just being yourself and being honest and um and i think most appalachian people who succeed in 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 the arts or the entertainment business however you want to say it that's been one of the keys you know like i mean i'm not comparing myself to dolly parton or gloria lynn for instance Mm -hmm. but if you think about what people relate to in them it's it's that they find them to be just their Mm -hmm. true selves and same for lee smith you know people love to hear lee talk because it's she's standing up in a room in front of two thousand people and it's like you're sitting on a porch with her because she's just being herself Uh, southernmost addresses uh issues and themes um that uh seem to be in the moment Mm -hmm. uh, seem to be today and uh, that's something that, that, of course, you did uh, and you wanted to do. Uh, the, the timing's extraordinary in, in uh, what we're going through in this divided nation now. Uh, y- you must be very, very proud of, of, the, of the work and the way it's been received. Yeah, I, the book is more relevant now than when I was writing it. And I think art just has a way of joining hands with the zeitgeist, you know. It's an... Uh, uh, an unexplainable, supernatural almost thing, the way the zeitgeist works. But when I was writing the book, I was very much thinking about people who were othered. And while the main uh, theme of the book focuses on uh, a gay person, there's lots of examples of the other throughout the book. There are uh, immigrants that are, are met throughout the book. 
um, Cherokee people, um, people who are considered too sensitive, uh, people who are suffering anxiety, you know, all these kinds of other othering that happens. I was thinking about how they often go through the world knowing that people they love have a fundamental, fundamentally different idea of what it means to be a good person than they do. This is something that other people have always been conscious of. Well, now that the election has happened and we're so divided, I think most people have that where they deeply love somebody with whom they fundamentally agree on a really moral ethic level, you know? So in that way, I think we, that it's, that's the way I find it to be most relevant. Um, and, and I've had a lot of conversations about that with people on the road. Rebecca Gail Howell is the James Still writer in residence uh, at the Heinemann Settlement School. What does this writer's conference and this place mean to you? Hmm. Well, let me start with the last question first. I mean, this place, Heinemann, and, and, and really particularly um, this area around Troublesome Creek is one of those rare places in America that have um, produced literature. Um, and I can think of, in, in my knowledge, only one other place that really produces a literature about itself while also sustaining a tradition. Um, and for me, that other place would be Provincetown, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. The Fine Arts Work Center, of course, has been there um, since I should know its date, but I don't, um, you know, for, for many decades now and has produced, you know, some of the nation's most significant writers. Um, and so their tradition is trans, um, tran it, it moves across place, but we all think of, I was a fellow at the Fine Arts Work Center, and, and we all think of the Work Center in Provincetown as this sort of cathedral to our imaginations, right? Because we spend eight, nine months there in the winter. And it has produced many books about that place. And uh, the Hyman Settlement School and the Banks of Troublesome Creek um, is not only another place that has done that, where books, whole works of literature are written about this place in the imaginary as well as in the documentary, but also it's been doing it for a hundred plus years, you know, without any degrees being promised, without any careers being promised, without any real pay behind the teachers, right? This has been a place where writing, where literature, where the imagination has taken seed. You know, when I talk about it in public, I say we are the seed bed of the Appalachian literary tradition. Um, and I'm, I'm adapting um, geological truth, which is these woods, the Appalachian woods, are the seed bed of North America. And so I think that, you know, for whatever reason, um, coincidence, the grace of something much higher and smarter than us, community, neighborliness, um, the need to tell a story uh, that might otherwise be forgotten, you know, the story of being colonized by a single industry, 
and what that looks like on the human level and not just the political or economic level, right? Um, so, you know, 1902, we were founded by two first wave feminists, Lexington ladies who were educated at Wellesley and then came home and then took an adventure that changed their lives and the lives, I mean, has changed my life. Um, and then shortly thereafter, they wrote their school friend, Lucy Furman, and said, gosh, we really need you. And of course, Lucy was the first writer in residence here. And she was the first one to really look around to herself and say, oh my gosh, there, I, I mean, in my mind, she really gave birth to documentary fiction in this very exciting way. She adapted this 19th century tradition of local color, and sometimes she's dismissed as a local color writer, but she, she adapted it and did these, um, gosh, I'm getting cold chills just thinking mm. about her body of work, this incredibly exciting tw feminist twist that authenticated her neighbors instead of stereotyping her neighbors. Um, and so, and then of course, Mr. Still came um, and followed in her footsteps, and now I'm here. And then, of course, the writer's workshop, which is your first question, um, that was given birth by a man named Albert Stewart, who Lucy Furman raised in her boy's house here. So, you know, it, again, no degree, no money. It, this is about something larger. This is about literature that moves across generation but is rooted deeply in the what Wendell Berry would call the inheritance of a place. Um, and how that has shaped the imaginary is, I mean, as a scholar, as a poet, as a woman, as a neighbor, hmm. it is completely thrilling to me. Do you remember the first time you came here? Mm -hmm. um, it was not that long ago. I had wanted to come and study when I was coming up as a writer in Kentucky in my 20s and early 30s. I was apprenticing um, under anyone who would have me. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to come here, and I, had, I didn't have the money. It's, it's, not a, um, it's not a cheap endeavor to, to pull this workshop off, and so you know, it, it costs some pennies. And I come from working people, and I, I've never had much. And um, I didn't get to come. And then, uh, of course, I went on to apprentice with um, many writers in other communities, and I published my first book. And I don't, I don't know how Brent came to that book, but he did, and he invited me home. So that was, let's see, Render was published in 2013. So maybe I was here in 2014 or 15. I'll have to look. So it wasn't that long mm -hmm. ago. But now you carry this, the title of writer in residence, and it must mean so much to you uh, in, in, on so many levels. Yeah. What are those, what are your obligations on sort of a... Uh, a job description um, level, and, and what are your what does your your emotional gut tell you about about the importance of, of the work that you will carry on? Mm. Um, it is um, so powerful in my heart that Brent awarded me this mm. position. I mean, I suppose if you're, we're talking about it as employee stuff, I was hired, but it didn't exist before, not as a formalized 
position, you know, Miss Furman, Mr. Still, they came here and just made it happen, you know. Um, and Brent made it happen for me, and I will be forever and deeply grateful to him because um, not only am I walking in, I'm, I'm, I'm moving in the walking paths cleared by two writers who I admire enormously. Um, I am able to serve a tradition that, oh my God, I mean, like, I, I, sorry to repeat myself, but I can think of no other tradition in the United States as we know it as a nation. So I'm not excluding First Nation literary traditions. I'm saying, you know, since, you know, that formation of our imaginary that is so deeply rooted in place for so long. There's not, I mean, as like I said, you know, as a scholar, as a Kentuckian, as an expat hillbilly, there, I, I couldn't have dreamed this. My heart couldn't have asked for this. This is, uh, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. What, how do you see the program, the place growing? So my, this is to your first question, my, uh, my responsibilities, my day-to-day -day responsibilities are number one, to write, um, and number two, to advise Brent and carry out um, the, um, I'm trying to say this in a way that's not poety. <laughs> that's all right, you're a poet. <laughs> The, you know, how we can move what, what is so special here and what has happened um, here in the 20th century, how we can protect that against the um, creative writing industry that has sprung up in the last 20 years that's um, aligned itself with capitalism. You know, let's, let's make sure that what has happened here and what has lasted and done so well and proven itself is protected the ethos, the way of teaching, the pedagogy, the neighborliness, the egolessness, right, the rootedness, and yet the adventure of the imagination, all of that stuff, let's protect that, and let's talk about ways that we can expand its access. Um, I've, I've been able to accomplish some things this past, my, in my first year that I'm quite proud of. Um, the first is um, The Makery, which is an online immersive writing studio for writers of place. So what we've, what we've done is, you know, really examine how the writer's workshop teaches. What is its pedagogy and why is it so special and unique? Um, I, we will announce um, Friday that we have brokered a relationship with the University Press of Kentucky to um, launch the press's first imprint. So the imprint will be a partnership between the Hyman Settlement School and the University Press of Kentucky. Its mission will be to um, uh, stabilize and help innovate the Appalachian literary tradition. Um, and it will be called Fireside Industries. For a first time um, participant um, uh, or, or a first time visitor, uh, whether they're in the Writers' Conference or not, what do you want them to leave with? Hmm. This is a home for artists.
exists, which is to say uh, it is a safe place that has understood for generations that a little quiet and a little time uh, and a little support, have your needs met, can produce um, bodies of writing and bodies of song making and bodies of art that are transformative not only for the national tradition um, and dialogue, but for me, more importantly, for our neighbors. Um, and so I want people to come here and, f and feel they're at home. So I, I want people to know they have a home here. Thank you. Thank you. Tanya, this is your first uh, trip to uh, the Heinemann Writers Conference, and I want to get your reaction on your week and what it's meant to you. Mm, it has been um, really transformative for my writing. I'm a, a novice writer. I'm a newer writer. Um, I graduated from the Carnegie Center um, of Literacy, their uh, writing program, and um, spent about a year doing that, and this has been the first time that I've been out, like, really writing with other writers for such a long time, such a long period of time, and it's been really great to get back into fundamentals of writing. Was it anything like you uh, thought it might be uh, when you first came, uh, the students that you've met, the other participants, uh, the atmosphere that's created here, the community? It was beyond my expectations, actually. I expected to come, meet some writers, do some writing prompts, have some really intense classes. And what I have discovered is there is a familial spirit here that once you walk through the doors with these other writers, you are part of their family. And I have learned so much from each person. Um, the instructors have been just incredible and giving. Um, and the work that I've been able to pull out of it after being in some of these classes has been just beyond my dreams. Tell me about what you're working on and how it has um, helped you. Yeah, so I'm working on a book on radical hospitality about things that we do in our community um, in Lexington, and I want to be able to share that with the world. Um, how can we be more radically hospitable to one another? How can we open our homes and our hearts to one another um, to kind of circumvent some of the vitriol that's out there and some of the anger um, and come to a place of understanding of one another? And um, this workshop has really helped me to take it from just looking at it in my neighborhood and what my husband and I are able to do in my neighborhood with our friends and family to kind of more of a worldview. How can I make this more accessible to other people? Um, how can I come from a five-foot view to a 500-foot view and make it something that's relatable from here to California to Chicago to all places? And that has really been informative. Wouldn't you also encourage um, all people uh, certainly uh, other uh, people of color to look into not only Heinemann, uh, but, but Eastern Kentucky and uh, Kentucky as a whole to, to be uh, more encouraging, more diverse, uh, more accepting of, of what we're all trying to do in this world. I think that here out of 84 or so writers, there's five of us that are 
people of color. Um, and I would love to see more writers bring along their friends of color, um, more writers talk about this program and this family that I've been able to be a part of this week um, that has really been um, growing for me. And so, yes, I would love to see Kentucky really zero in on the fact that there are incredible writers of culture and all kinds of things that are not told about programs like this and don't have access to programs like this. Uh, if it hadn't been for Crystal Wilkinson um, and uh, Rebecca, I would not have ever known that this program existed in the first place. So they've got to tell their friends and family. If you could name one thing that you're taking away from this week uh, that you'll forever hold near and dear uh, in your heart uh, for the rest of your life, what would that be? What has been the biggest point for me has been the generosity of writers who have been published and have been writing for years and years and years to sit down next to you with no airs, putting on zero airs, um, and recognizing that they're still learning too. And so I will always be a lifetime learner as a writer, and I, I take that away from me. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. SoundCloud.